With CI Markets, you can access AI-powered market forecasting for as low as $20 a month. Get 94.7% market forecast accuracy for over 1,200 assets across stocks, commodities, currencies, equity indices, and economics. With weekly updates and one-month and three-month error rates, you can rely on CI Markets to help you make informed decisions. Join a growing number of satisfied users who already transform the way they invest and trade with CI Markets. Don't miss on another opportunity. Start forecasting with confidence today for as low as $20 a month. Visit completeintel.com markets to learn more. everyone and welcome to the week ahead. I'm Tony Nash. Today we are joined by Markets and Mayhem. Use uh, macro analyst and trader, of course. Um, we're also joined by Albert Marco and Tracy Schuchart. Um, we've got a, a wide variety of items to cover this week. The first is, is why is crude so low? I've been talking with Tracy about that all week and um, trying to understand those mechanics a little bit better. And obviously we have an OPEC meeting coming up, so we want to talk through what's going to happen there. Um, I want to talk about the UST, US Treasury tsunami that's coming. We'll talk to Mayhem about that and understand some of the implications of, of this tightening activity that we see, particularly on things like real estate. Um, and then we want to talk about the UAE and I guess the broader Middle East with Albert. Um, some of those uh, relationships seem to be spoiling a bit with the US. And so we want to understand, is this kind of finally the Middle East pivot to Asia or is there something different uh, going on? So, guys, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate uh, your time. It's I know it's very valuable. Um, Tracy, um, let's start off with you with crude. You know, why is it so low? You know, we we saw things really head down for a couple of weeks. Uh, we saw things start to perk up on Thursday, and uh, and so far they're doing well on Friday. So you know, what's happening with it? It hit the, the 60s, it's back up above 70, I believe right now. Um, so what factors are keeping crude down at a time when we think seasonal factors would really start to push crude prices up a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really it's the broader macro environment. What you have here is that, you know, global supplies are tightening, right? We are draining global supplies. Iran's done dumping their uh, floating storage. Um, so markets should really tighten up here this summer, particularly with the new uh, OPEC cuts, the voluntary cuts uh, that went into effect this month. But, you know, there's still these broader recession fears. You wouldn't think that looking at the market, right? <laughs> but, you know, there's overwhelming thoughts of, you know, there's still these re recessionary fears. We had bad terrible manufacturing data come out of the EU this week. We had terrible manufacturing data. One of the data sets in China, that really set the tone um, at the very beginning of the week when we saw that dive at, down into 67. Um, U.S. manufacturing also uh, contracting a bit as well. And so I think that, you know, traders looking at those numbers and that's spooking the market. We also have, you know, the participation in this market is 
done. <laughs> there is no participation in this market, basically. When you say participation, you're talking about trading so, volume? So open interest. Open interest, okay. Right, so um, yeah. open interest, there's just not really a lot of open interest. Um, you know, most longs have exited the market, and it's not that really shorts are adding, it's that nobody's engaging in, in the market. And so there's just really a lack of interest right now in, in this, even though, you know, fundamentals are still tight. It's just this, um, this economic um, macro backdrop that's really, you know, uh, kind of pushing people away from, from. Okay. So I've seen some people talk about like a bullwhip effect. We saw things fall so far. Um, with things like the the unemployment uh, data coming out on Friday being above expectation, could we start to potentially see some sort of bull whip effect where we see crude rally uh, on a notable basis, or or will it take a lot more than something like that? No, I think we absolutely could. First of all, we just started having these OPEC cuts right in May. Even though we haven't really seen uh, Russian exports subside up until this month, you know, I think, you know, it's, I, I imagine that it would take like a month or two really for those cuts really to filter into the, you know, fundamental analysis. I mean, OPEC's looking at, you know, by the end of June, we're looking at a 2.3 million barrel deficit. Okay. If keeping these, uh, keeping these cuts you know, online. And so I think that, you know, as these markets tighten, you know, people will not be able to kind of ignore that any longer. Okay. Very interesting. Real quick, do you, what about a cap on Russian seaborne exports or existing cuts going mandatory for OPEC meetings? Is that possible? Either one of them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot up for discussion in the OPEC meeting. I think what they'll have, you know, I think they'll focus on compliance. So those, anybody that's been overproducing will have to stop immediately. I think, you know, I'm not sure that they're going to make additional cuts just because those cuts are just now starting to filter in. Again, it's only been, you know, a month. And okay. so- Really, that hasn't really filtered into really into the supply side situation. I'm sure that uh, Russia will get a talking to because I think that, you know, um, even though they have cut some production, they said 500K, it's about 300K. Um, their exports still have not really gone down. That said, mm -hmm. over the last couple of weeks, according to Vortexa data, we are starting to see uh, those exports come down a bit. And so okay. I'm sure that, that, you know, again, I'm sure they'll get a talking to. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, you know, it's, I think it's too early to really to make additional cuts. That said, you know, OPEC is known for surprises. And so right. uh, you don't really know 100%, you know, I wouldn't count it out 100%, but I would lean towards probably no change. So, so they're meeting on the fourth. You don't think there's going to be a change, but you do think they're going to 
focus on uh, compliance by Russia. So like OPEC's pretty patient with their member states, right? Generally. And it sounds like, you know, Russia's really had its its run. They've overproduced. You know, a lot of the stuff is going to places like India. So once that stern talking to happens and if Russia decides to comply, you know, what happens to places like India and Saudi's been importing Russian barrels too, right? And so- uh, the, Yeah, they've been uh, importing Russian diesel and then selling their higher priced diesel to Europe. Yep. Um, so, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, if if oil prices go up, right, that's still going to, obviously that'll put some pressure on say India and China buying really cheap barrels, but, you know, Russian oil is still trading at a large discount to Brent and as it is. And OPEC really wants to see at least Brent, you know, in that 80 to $90 range. And so I think they're going to try to uh, manipulate, not manipulate the market, but, you know, uh, oversee the market so that they can get those prices that they need. If you look at, you know, kind of the OPEC nations uh, break even, fiscal break evens, mm -hmm. you know, they're all in that, you know, 70 to $80 range. So really they need, really they want that 80 to $90 range. Great. I love that you said OPEC isn't manipulating the market. I, I think that's great. So, <laughs> um, so uh, what do you say? You know, I've seen a lot um, of people over the past couple of weeks say, look, OPEC only controls 30% of the of global markets, so they don't really have control over crude prices. What's your response to that? Is that is that true? Are they immaterial or? Well, it's OPEC and o OPEC plus, right? right? And so, well, you know, between U.S., Russia and Saudi Arabia were the top three producers in the world. And so that is, you know, quite significant because a lot of these other countries, um, you know, there's a lot of countries producing oil, but, you know, in, in much, much smaller amounts. Mm -hmm. By far, those are the three largest producers. And so, you know, they can, you know, with the plus part of OPEC, they are, you know, it, it, they are better. It is easier to manage the market. Mm -hmm. Especially when shale's not really a threat to them anymore because our production isn't really growing mm -hmm. at this point. And so and they don't have to worry about shale going crazy, overproducing, and bringing oil prices down. Right. And we know there's a floor to shale, right? We know there's a floor of 65, 60, whatever to shale, right? So, you know, if they can be prepared for that, which we which we've seen over the past couple of weeks, then right. that's it's not really as far as it goes, but it's kind of as far as it goes on a sustainable basis. Right. Right. Tracy, does it seem like the oil markets, if there was a pretty meaningful disruption to supply or if the Chinese reopening story really does start to take shape, that this tightness could lead to a pretty significant rebound in price? If there's any catalyst on either side, a Absolutely. disruption in supply or an increase in, in demand, it kind of seems like we're priming the pump, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent agree with that. And, you know, what's interesting is though we have seen, you know, the property sector and manufacturing in China is still horrible, right? Or manufacturing less horrible, but, um, you know, we did see them talk, come out uh, overnight and talk about how they want to try to revitalize the property sector. Um, that did give oil a little boost, but also interesting, you know, China's been importing 
a lot of crude. In fact, our all-time high was just in April at uh, 16 million barrels a day, which is huge. And so, um, you know, even though their imports keep increasing, there's still this overwhelming sentiment that's weighing on the markets, and particularly which, with what is going on economically within China. Very interesting. Okay, so um, so it seems to me that we, and I, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here, but we've kind of seen. I wouldn't say the absolute floor, but at least temporarily, we've hit where we're going to hit. And things may muddle around for a while, but generally, there's an upside expectation for crude through the summer. Yeah, I think that we will see that. I think as, Mar as again, those, those cuts filter in, we're going to see markets significantly tighten over the summer. Great. Okay. Very interesting. Thank you for that. And so speaking of tightening, uh, Mayhem, let's talk about U.S. Treasuries. Um, you put out a piece, uh, I think a week ago or so, um, maybe less than that, about, um, no, a few days ago, I'm sorry, uh, about uh, now that the debt ceiling has moved forward, we're going to see $1.2 trillion of Treasury debt issuance. Um, so can you talk us through that and help us understand how that will impact markets? Uh, what's the timing of that expected and so on? Sure. So the first thing is going into this year, Treasury Secretary Yellen issued a warning in mid-January saying that they were reaching the statutory limit to what the U.S. could borrow without a change in the debt ceiling. And so at that point, issuance of debt for new debt was suspended. And it was only debt that was being refinanced that continued to be auctioned off in the market. So, you know, we still saw Treasury auctions, but they weren't nearly the same size. And with uh, TGA accounts spending into uh, bank reserves, that helped to add some fast moving liquidity. We also had positive boosts from central banks like the People's Bank of China and the Bank of Japan, adding in aggregate a pretty significant amount of liquidity, more than offset. QT by the Fed and later by the European Central Bank that started in March of this year. So now we're getting to the sort of other side of this, where the Treasury General account is essentially drained. Um, there's less than, I think at this point, $30 billion in the account. So it's very crucial that they do pass uh, the, the, the increases signed in and that you know they move forward with everything. I never thought a default was a risk, but there's a lot of kabuki theater that happens around here. And uh, the one thing I just wanted to say as I get into the next part is that, you know, when people start saying a default is imminent or if we reach this date, a default is going to happen and it's just sort of cut and dry, that's never been true because the executive branch has the authority to delegate which payments are gonna be prioritized and they can continue to do that with debt repayments um, on interest in maturing you know, uh, bills and otherwise. But on the other side of it, you know, they can shut down the government, furlough workers, defer payments. And so the, the whole idea that we were ever gonna have a default was a bunch of noise. And it was really more about what potentially happens at the other side of, uh, of the resolution of the debt ceiling, which is all but inevitable, right? And it's good we didn't have it shut down because that would have been a drag on the economy if it lasted a while. Government spending has been pretty important to GDP the last two quarters. And so, you know, averting that shutdown is, is constructive. But what it means is that over the next, say, five weeks or so, there is about 700 billion of bill issuance that needs to happen before, um, you know, before we end out the second to last quarter for this government's uh, uh, budget. And then we also have by the end of the fiscal year, which is September 30th for the U.S. government, there's a total, including that 700 billion of 1.2 trillion. 
that needs to be issued. Now, it, it sounds like a lot because it is, but it really wouldn't have been as much if we were issuing it starting in the beginning of the year, right? When, when so, we started to run into that ceiling. Okay, so let me just stop you there. So 1.2 trillion by September, what is the typical run rate over say a four month period? Is it close to that? Is it 1.2 trillion? Is it 500 billion? What is the what is the debt issuance on a normal run rate? It's I mean so we're there's nothing normal about the times we're in. So there aren't a lot of good historical analogs to look at. We can look at last year and say, you know, for for the last quarter of the year, uh, there was about a half trillion dollars of issuance, I believe. Um, But at the same time, that was when a lot of spending was being kicked up significantly, right? This was when there was funding necessity for the uh, Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, whether it's ironically named or not. And a lot of that stuff started to come online. And then interest expenses are coming up too, because the Fed is doing QT. And that means that the interest-free kind of borrowing that the Treasury was able to do where, you know, the Fed would buy at auction. They were the biggest buyer. And when they did, they paid back the interest at the end of the year, minus any Fed expenses. That's over while interest rates are also rising. So interest rate expense is set to hit over a trillion dollars. That's another reason that debt issuance is increasing to be able to offset that. We're essentially, you know, paying off the interest on our debt by issuing more debt um, in an environment where rates seem to stay, uh, seem set to stay high for some time. So I think that that all that being said, you know, on a typical uh, four-month basis, it would be much, much more, I would say, average to see 150, 200 billion, you know, okay. maybe 250 if it's heavy spending. But we've also seen that over time, all, and this kind of goes back to the debt ceiling, should we even have one, all that we've ever seen with our debt is that it goes up. And the debt ceiling, if you look at it over time, especially the last, say, 25 years, it's more like a debt elevator doesn't really you know, stop any of the, the, the frivolity or any of the excess or any of the pork barrel spending. So um, I would say that there's, there's no real normalcy. We're in a, this post-COVID era. There was helicopter money. There was so much spending. They're continuing down that path. It takes $1 of, um, you get $1 of GDP growth out of every $4.5 of government debt incurred. Yeah. Right. So it's not a very efficient way. But but back to your question, what does it do to the market? What does it do to the economy? So this is a potentially a liquidity sponge. It really depends on how the plumbing of the markets handles it. Yep. There is some chance that if the rates on the bills are high enough, that it could tempt some money out of other sources. So it's not as big of a liquidity sponge. Maybe if we see rates you know, on those bills getting closer to six, six and a half percent, you start to see some money coming out of reverse repos. You start to see some money coming out of some of the equity accounts as people are looking for, you know, that sort of ongoing great rotation into fixed income and out of equities that we've seen as a bit of a theme. Um, but I think if, if it's not as tempting, it does have the potential to start to pull liquidity out of bank reserves. Either way, it's going to have that impact. It's a question as, uh, as to scale of impact. And This is, yeah. this is interesting. So you mentioned the liquidity sponge and you also talked earlier about how the TGA activity was kind of offsetting the QT activity that the, that the Fed was doing, right? Yeah. So if, uh, if this debt issuance is acting as a liquidity sponge, it's almost an acceleration of tightening because you don't have the TGA necessarily offsetting QT anymore, right? 
you've got this liquidity sponge that's taking dollars out of the market unless the U.S. government can accelerate their spending. Is that fair to say? I would say that, you know, even if they do accelerate, the net impact is likely to, to, to offset. And I don't think that the, the way things are lined up now, that we're not going to see too much acceleration. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I could, of course, be very wrong about that. But the main takeaway here that, that I have is, like you said, for really from October of last year, until present, we've had a lot of flows from TGA, PBOC, and BOJ. Now, the BOJ and PBOC are probably going to continue being yep. aggregate adders of liquidity. They have to. Yep. I, yeah, yeah, I think so. And they're they're trying to kind of um, decouple their credit cycles the best they can from credit cycles that in the West are being ended intentionally by central banks to try to offset this uh, this inflation wave that we're experiencing, which is now concentrated more in services. Um, I think that 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 vacation is kind of coming to an end. And and what we're seeing now is the inverse, that not only is the TGA not going to be spending as much in, in all likelihood, but also that that issuance combined with QT by the ECB, by the Fed, um, and to some extent by the Bank of England, that's, that is more of getting back to what monetary policy had intended for, which is to tighten financial conditions. And then the other additive to that is also that credit conditions are tightening. Right. Banks are lending less and to whom they're lending, they're lending at higher interest rates. And so there's aggregate impacts there are cumulative impacts to what's happening with rates rising as much as they have, because more and more people have uh, debt that they have to refinance. There's also small, mid-sized businesses and a fair amount of consumer debt that are revolvers that as rates rise, the compounding effects of those higher rates are starting to really hurt. Um, so I think that, that when you put that all together it does suggest that there is some potential, um, you know, some potential fattening of the left tail going into the back half mm -hmm. of this year in terms of how risk assets and rates might behave in an environment where liquidity goes from being rather abundant to rather scarce during a time where seasonality has a similar effect. Right. So in terms of the impact of, say, the credit crunch that's coming, it, will we kind of, whatever normal is, are we returning to kind of a normal balance or, you know, is it extraordinarily tight? Do you think things will get extraordinarily tight? I know that no matter what happens, it will feel extraordinarily tight compared to where we've been for the last, you know, few years. But are we returning to a normal or will it be tighter than normal? That's a really good question, and I'm a, I'm going to imagine that it will gradually become tighter than what we're used to. But what we're used to was also a rather unprecedented time. It was several yep. decades of you know disinflation, of uh, you know a really overall pretty strong economy, uh, lower and lower interest rates along the way, a, a very abundant liquidity and credit, you know, ever increasing over really the better part of the last 14 years to unprecedented levels. So in comparison to what most people are used to, I would say, yeah, it, it's likely to be tighter. The question is for how long? Yep. And the question is what other unintended consequences will happen along the way? I think one of the most interesting discussions on the other side of this is that as rates go higher and stay higher for longer, it not only helps to subdue demand, but it actually also starts to constrain supply. Because if you're the CEO of an energy company or a metals company or an agricultural company and you're, you're hearing, okay, wages are going up and they're high already, 
you know, costs of uh, capital are high and, and availability of capital is dwindling and business conditions aren't so robust moving forward, am I going to expand supply into that environment? So then what do things look like as we approach and get into the next credit cycle? When we start from a place of, you know, higher prices, but less availability of supply when demand comes back and there's not supply able to absorb that and credit still, you know, it'll loosen, but it'll likely be tighter than what we're used to. It seems like there's not the capability to address that in a timely manner, that that inflation has become a little bit more structural. And some of the irony of that is part of that's driven by the Fed's policy. Now, to their credit, they can't do much to offset the fact that the government, not only at the federal level, but various state governments and other countries' governments are sort of providing this inflation relief, right? Checks to people to offset the impact of inflation, but that just in aggregate adds money to the system. That's, um, like, your, that's like your 2 p.m. sugar high, right? Like it just gets you through dinner. It doesn't really keep you going, right? I mean, that, that stuff can't be permanent. No, it, it, and it's it's just kind of extending some of the issues and making them a little more structural in nature, I feel like. And so for the first time since the 1930s, we've seen M2 money supply fall year over year. But then if we look at it just as a number rather than a year over year trend, we can see that it's just really reverting back to the trend that it's had. That money supply growth was extraordinarily high during COVID, that they really flooded the system with money, helicopter money, liquidity for the financial system while simultaneously shutting everything down and then, you know, kind of scratch their heads when prices of everything went up when there wasn't enough supply. But the some of the supply constraints that we're dealing with, and Tracy could speak to this uh, much more than me, is a lack of investment. We haven't been investing in so many of these resources for such a long time. And uh, that's also created some structural potential for inflation to move higher. And, uh, you know, as we get into another credit cycle, I think we've probably seen the worst of goods inflation, this credit cycle, barring any kind of meaningful disruption in supply. But then services inflation are, is also quite sticky. And one of the recurring themes we see in ISM data and employment data is the services industry is very strong. Wages continue to rise there. And those wages are being passed on to consumers in the form of yep. rising prices. Yep. You know, Albert's talked a lot about the structural nature of inflation and expects it to rear its head again. But what's interesting from what I'm hearing from both you and Tracy is tightness. Tracy's talking about tightness in, in crude. You're talking about tightness in, in credit. And um, it just feels like we're on the precipice of this of this snap change um, where we're, we're, we're transitioning from this world of abundance for the last few years, setting aside the supply chain uh, aspects of things, you know, world of kind of relative abundance into a world of scarcity. And that's what happens when interest rates rise, right? That's what happens when credit markets tighten is you have you have scarcity, then you have real bidding for the price of things, right? So uh, that's really interesting. So to real estate you you posted a really interesting uh chart about um uh about investor purchases of real estate um so you say new home purchases by investors have fallen by the most ever is that just a, a is it blackrock kind of phenomenon where they stop buying homes or is it is that real people stopping to buy investment homes as well 
It's both. And I mean, it's driven by some of the same factors that we've talked about because home prices are stubbornly high. There's a lack of supply from existing homes because who wants to move when mortgage rates have more than doubled? from where they may have you know, financed their mortgage at. Uh, so there's a lack of supply there. Home builders are trying to keep up with the, uh, the new orders, but they're struggling because they're facing rising wages, rising capital costs, less availability of capital, lower in aggregate new homes pricing. So their, their orders have gone down, their backlogs have gone down. We're starting to see that in some of the homes data. But um, I think that it's, it's both sides of the coin because if you're an individual you know, home flipper or someone who aspires to be a landlord or whatever else, banks are going to be more skeptical lending to those second and third mortgages, right? Your initial mortgage, they're still churning those out, but they're much tighter with their credit. But for the folks that are hopeful investors, they're just not, I mean, most banks are, are not willing to do that for a rate that is favorable. So, you know, you look at the disparity between rent and home ownership in a lot of areas, it's hard for a new landlord to get in. Because with the mortgage costs and insurance and uh, property taxes are all going to pay, they're not going to be able to compete with some of the other landlords unless they're in a really hot up and coming area. Like you might be able to do it in New York. You might be able to do it in Miami. You probably won't be able to do it in a lot of the U.S. But in terms of what's going on in, in real estate, it's an interesting dichotomy because on the, and then on the other side, we're seeing prolific weakness in office buildings, right? There's yeah. the lowest amount of utilization we've ever seen. So there's at least one place in the market where there isn't scarcity. Yeah, I think uh, a couple of things. I think Meta just announced that they need, they want their staff back three days a week or something soon, which it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but also in terms of people moving, gosh, I was just in Austin last weekend and I think probably six to 8% of all the license plates I saw were California plates. So there are a lot of people who are you know, selling their places in California and moving moving to Austin. I don't see that as much where I live, but that seems to be one of those markets that seems to be de defying gravity, which is, it's just crazy to see that uh, as the rest of the U.S. seems to be uh, at least holding or maybe selling off. So, okay, that's great. Ma'am, thank you so much for that. Um, your stuff is great. I really appreciate uh, your feed and, and all the stuff you always put out. It's really balanced and really smart. So thank you for that. Um, Albert, let's move on to some geopolitical uh, stuff. And, um, you know, there was an announcement this week about the UAE uh, that you tweeted about um, where UAE is uh, pulling out of a maritime coalition that the U.S. set up for security in Gulf waters. And I know that the U.S. and UAE have been partners in security for the region, very close partners for a couple decades. Um, and it seems like that may be breaking up. And but we've talked about this several times before, like the State Department in the U.S. is is very ineffectual. It's actually DOD that conducts the more in, uh, um, important uh, diplomacy on behalf of the U.S. So when we see these um, defense uh, things break up, it's 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 significant. So can you help us understand that a bit more? Well, there's two reasons for this. One is the Biden's administration of continuing Obama's uh, theories of uh, lead from behind in the Middle East, which is absolutely nonsensical. It just doesn't work. Vacuums get filled. Turkey had to stabilize the region by looking towards other nations like the UAE, Qatar, and Oman, and Saudi Arabia. And this is just a natural progression of the U.S. stepping back. You know, if you ask the, if you ask the Biden administration, they continue to say that they're engaged, but their their level of engagement and the way they go about it is questionable at, at, at best. I mean, 
you know, with, with the Saudis just with lack of respect towards Biden and Blinken, this is nothing of a surprise to me. I, in fact, I, I foresee Turkey being a much more regional player in the coming decade than the U.S. will be. You know, it, it's really interesting. About 20 years ago, a book came out called The Next Hundred Years, and George Friedman wrote about how Turkey was going to be a regional power again. And at the time, it seemed not intuitive. Um, and I know Friedman has a lot of things that, mm-hmm. you know, haven't necessarily stuck. But um, to see Turkey reemerge as a regional power is is very, very interesting for me. And um, to see Erdogan reelected, I don't think it's a complete surprise, um, but it's interesting to see the leadership they've taken. So how can you give a couple of examples of how Turkey is taking leadership in that region? Well, they've been setting up military bases, I believe, in Qatar and the UAE. They've been working uh, hand in hand with the uh, with the Iranians, believe it or not, in Africa and the Russians. You know, they've been they've been pushing out their drones to pretty much anyone that was willing to buy them, and they've been including uh, Ukraine, right? Of, of course, of course, the Ukraine. Everybody they push it out to anybody yep. they can buy, and they use that as leverage for trade deals. And and right now, uh, a lot of Russian money goes through Turkey and. They don't really care what the United States has to say because the United States still and the world has to deal with Turkey as a geostrategic place uh, in the world. Look at the map, for God's sakes. You right. know, they have the Bosphorus, the Black Sea. They're, they touch Europe. They touch the Middle East. You know, they're active in Africa. They're everywhere. And they have relationships with China, too, that are positive, right? Yeah. Well, of course, the Chinese need to push their materials through Turkey, <laughs> the Bosphorus Straits, and, you know, through train, uh, rail, and you know, they're, 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 they're a force that you just can't get around, literally. Now, they do have big economic problems, and I have disagreements with them uh, concerning the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. But uh, once, that, once that reality bites them, they, they turn back and actually build some reserves. So their, economy, their economy should be fine and, you know, get away from this hyperinflation of, uh, threat that they're facing. So I see, I see countries like Turkey, India, Indonesia that are pretty independent diplomatically. Mm-hmm. They have a foot in the US sphere. They have a foot in the Chinese sphere. Um, some of them, like India, Turkey especially, have a foot in the Russian sphere. What is What does that mean? Is there, can the US kind of mend fences and build relationships with those guys? Because there are three very important countries. You don't hear about Indonesia a lot in the U.S., but it's it's one of the largest countries in the world. So, you know, at, Turkey is strategically placed, and India is the largest country in the world. So, what? How can the U.S. build those relationships without having kind of a binary, uh, say, bilateral partnership with them? Meaning, it's the U.S. and no China, no Russia. What's the best approach for them? Well, I think, first of all, we need to get an entire new administration, starting with the State Department and the DOD. Uh, uh, without that changing, you're, it's, nothing's going to change. I mean, they've well, first Obama and now you have the Biden administration continues to push on the Indians and given and giving them uh, ultimatums on dealing with Russia and whatnot. So India is a billion people. They have their own concerns, economic concerns. They need that cheap oil. And, and they have, have a long history with Russia, too. And they, they use the Russia as a counterbalance with the Chinese. Now, in, 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 Indonesia has the same opposite effect. I mean, Indonesia 
is food secure. They have their own food security, so they don't really need that. They have a bustling uh, manufacturing center just gaining more steam, and they interact with the Chinese because they have to. It's a regional power. So you can't really expect. I, I just I, I don't understand why people expect, you know, pick them or us. It, it's never like that in, in the world. It's just it doesn't work like that. So right. uh, like I said, things will change when we have a new administration, and it's probably going to take a couple decades to rebuild those relationships. But a couple you know, of decades, you think? Wow. Well, you can't just turn something around in one administration. Let's just say theoretically, DeSantis wins and cleans house, and it takes two years to be able to shift things around properly and see something starting to materialize. And that's not enough. Then you're up for re-election after four. If he wins again, you have eight. Maybe at the end of his uh, second term, you have some kind of you know fruits uh, that'll be blossoming between those relations. But until then, it's just not not good news. And they're just looking out for their own self-interest, right? I mean, it's not well, that every they... Nation does. Every nation does. It's national self-interest. I've yep. made this argument about the EU for so many years you know, everyone kept saying, oh, the EU is unified and we're this and we're that. Well, come when you add a little stress to the situation, you know, the, the rift between Berlin and Paris starts to show its ugly head. And, uh, and the Northern Europe versus Southern Europe and everybody's, you know, everybody's in it for themselves. It's right. just the reality. So let me ask you guys. Go ahead, ma'am. I would just say that, that the issue that uh, Albert mentioned about countries, governments that you guys were talking about, them having their own self-interest always in mind, that's also an issue with politicians individually. And that's a huge problem as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about America or are you talking about everywhere? I mean, it's I can only speak to, to America, but I'm going to say it's likely everywhere. And the, the, one of the problems that we do face in America that's uh, a big challenge is that money has the rights of free speech, that corporations are treated as people. And unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily uh, bode well for the interests of the citizenry being represented by the political elite. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I agree with you. We could have a very long conversation on the voices that get heard in, say, the State Department and the voices that get heard in DOD and the voices that get heard in, in these different departments. It's, you know, it's, it's I believe, fully money-backed. A hundred percent. And it's, it's you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. Just look look at the Fred in the Treasury. Where do those guys go to work after they're done with their appointments? Right. Go to Wall exactly. Street. You know, you're telling, me that, you're telling me that Yellen and Powell don't take calls from market makers and brokerages uh, on right. the side? I mean, that's just a joke. It's literally a joke. Right. L- let me just get back to geopolitics for a minute in, in the Middle East. So the, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia has really started to change a bit over the past couple of years. And uh, I think it really started changing during the Khashoggi stuff. Um, and and it's kind of deteriorated since then. So um Tracy, what are you seeing with like on, in energy markets? I know this nuclear thing was just announced with Saudi, but with regard to energy, you know, we've seen Biden go to Saudi and ask him to release more oil while restricting oil here. You know, I mean, the U.S. does, as far as energy is concerned, the U.S. doesn't have any pull there anymore. And again, that's because shale is no longer a threat to them because mm-hmm. it's not growing um you know there's uh, for 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 a lot of reasons right you have you know 
tier one acreage gone, you have no CapEx for the last seven years, you have uh, oil companies beholden to shareholders at this point, buybacks, dividends, capital discipline, uh, paying down debt, et cetera. And so really, you know, you're not going to see shale go crazy anymore. So, you know, it's not as big of a threat as it once was and so that factors in as well and you know you have you know the current administration is certainly not helping by any stretch of the imagination as far as you know uh trying to get these companies to grow uh whatsoever you know he wants to shut it all down tomorrow possible so you know i think that's really you know this nuclear thing that came up this uh kind of this what they're calling kind of the uh uh, nuclear Aramco. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's very interesting because it does point that, you know, Saudi, I think, you know, Saudi relations with this particular administration are at the low level, but they know that, you know, this current administration is not going to be here forever. <laughs> and so, um, you know, they, they, we still need those, those ties. And, you know, we've had tumultuous times with Saudi Arabia since um, we really started having that alliance in the 1930s. Uh, uh, But we've been longtime partners uh, and have gone through bumps in the road. So I don't think that relationship is, you know, I wouldn't count on that being gone whatsoever. It's just right now, this particular administration particularly does not have any pull. Albert, what what are your thoughts on that? you know, I I do kind of actually worry about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Do you, is that something where you think the Saudis are just kind of biding time until the administration yeah, changes? Uh, yeah, they're buying time. They still listen. They still know that the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency and not changing in anybody's lifetime. They know that they have to rely on the United States as a defense partner. They have these realities that they go through. Obviously, they have issues with the current administration. There's no question about that. Uh, they don't like how uh, relations have been handled in, in public. So I, uh, inevitably, the, the Saudis were going to push back a little bit and at least give a little bit of attention towards uh, D.C. to say to push back and say, hey, we're not we're not just pushovers. You just can't use us as, you know, as a punching bag for whatever political situation you have back home. It doesn't work like that. So. But until, you know, I don't think anything really dramatic is going to happen. Like they're just going to say the hell with the United States, we're going to China or anything like that. It's just, you know, there's too many other realities at, at play here. Okay. Um, okay, guys, let's let's wrap it up just really quick. The week ahead, I mean, we've got the Fed meeting coming up. We've got, you know, OPEC meeting on Sunday, you know, this sort of thing. But Tracy, let's start with you. What do you expect for the week ahead? Do you see strength continuing to come back to crude and, and dissolutes or or what do you what do you see happening? You know, I think that's gonna I think the OPEC meeting kind of set the tone for the week, right? If they do nothing, we may see um, a little bit of a pullback in oil, but again, this market's heading for you know for tightness, and th- that's just a fact. Um, so really, I'm will we you know my weekend is spent on OPEC, <laughs> and uh, and that's really what I'm you know looking forward to. Obviously, you know, right. Their macro events. Albert, what do you see? What do you see for the week ahead as we tee up for the Fed? Uh, definitely starting with OPEC. I want to see what they do. I, I actually think that they're going to probably announce some surprise cuts. Um, I, I think 
markets run up based on that. I think they're trying to create a buffer because uh, tension because of OPEC oil probably rising and probably the Fed coming in there and Jerome snap slapping 25 basis points on us again. I think this might be the last one, but I'm not sure for, you know, till the fall. Okay, so I think, and and ma'am, you can come in here too. I think, you know, the, the 25 seems all but guaranteed, but what do you expect the tone will be? Do you think it will be a... Um, a relatively hawkish tone given the jobs numbers, or do you think it will be a relatively kind of dovish hike? So I'm going to, I'm going to be, uh, I guess a bit divergent uh, versus what's been expressed so far. I don't think the fed hikes in June. I think we've oh, really? seen, uh, yeah, I, I don't think they hike in June. I think that they're going to go into more of a, hike, skip, hike, skip pattern. If there are to be more hikes, I think the next hike is likely to come in July. Um, and, and I think that uh, they're going to leave the door open to additional hikes and they're going to say they're continuing to monitor data. But one thing Powell specifically mentioned watching is jolts. And with the data that we've gotten recently, we can see that we still have something like 1.7, 1.8 jobs available for every person seeking work. And that's a metric that displeases this Fed. So at the very least, whenever they are done hiking, and it's sooner than later, maybe they have one, two, maybe three, I kind of doubt it, but I'm leaning pretty heavy on at least one uh, hikes left in the, um, you know, in their plan. But the bigger and I think more important question, and this is something that Powell has even uh, expressed to the press, is that the bigger question is how long do they leave rates high? How long do they run down their balance sheet? And I think that is a really important question that the market continues to misprice the answer to. The answer is generally thought of, oh, they're going to start cutting as soon as September or November of this year. And we're, we're going to just automatically go back into you know, a, a complete easing cycle when inflation's become much stickier than I think uh, anyone wanted to see. My thought is that, uh, and I saw Albert laugh, and I agree. I mean, it is laughable. But my thought is that uh, it's much more likely next year and probably in the second half of next year, that the Fed considers really easing. And the caveat there is if they break something big enough, because that's been the classic Fed turnabout. Their real dual mandate, I like to say, is creating and destroying bubbles. They haven't yet destroyed this bubble. And the lagged impacts of monetary policy, the hiking cycle having really just started early last year, they're only starting to hit. The first hike was in March, the first bout of junior QT, was in June, and then it went up to full throttle in September. We haven't yet felt the entire tightening, nor have we felt the tightening of credit conditions from banks. So I still think there, there's more to kind of go through. And I think the Fed is going to strike a hawkish but balanced tone and say that don't misinterpret this skip for an actual pause. A hawkish pause. I like that. I, it's it's not consensus, and that's why I like it. <laughs> Very good. So we have a little bit of a difference here. So, so, um, so let's see what happens. So, guys, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really, uh, I really appreciate it. All your insight. Have a great weekend and have a great week ahead. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you.